Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything that we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so Cannondale has been rolling out a ton of very interesting bikes recently, including the Jekyll High Pivot Enduro bike that I've been spending time on, and the Scalpel Hardtail, their new cross-country race bike with wildly progressive geometry for the category. And so this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Scott Vogelman, Cannondale's Global Director of Product for Mountain, and Travis Tomsack, their Global Marketing Manager for Mountain, to talk about everything they're up to, including both of those bikes, some teasers for the new things that they have in the pipeline, a whole bunch of discussion of the crazy dual shock downhill bike prototype that they rolled out a few years ago that led to the development of the Jekyll, and a whole lot more. But before we get into all of that, you should also check out our new guide to visiting Blister's home in Crested Butte and the rest of the Gunnison Valley. It's got tons of information on all of the new flights that are being added to and from the Gunnison Airport, the excellent public transit in the area, and more. So click on the link in the show notes and come pay us a visit. Whether it's to join us for the Blister Summit in February, go skiing some other time this winter, or in the spring to ride bikes on the massive trail network in the area. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Scott Vogelman and Travis Tomzek of Cannondale. Well, Scott and Travis, welcome to Bikes and Big Ideas. How are you today and where are you today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I'm tuning in from Wilton, Connecticut, which is our global headquarters. And uh, I'm doing well. Got the snowblower out this morning, finally, in uh, Park City, Utah. So can't really complain. Yeah, finally starting to snow a bit out here in the West and U.S. a bit. Um, it's piling up where I'm at too. So excited to do some skiing pretty soon, but that is not quite the uh, job at hand today. We're here talking a whole bunch of stuff, Cannondale mountain bikes. So before we get into more of that, how about you two just take us through your respective roles at Cannondale a little bit more and anything else about your background that you want to throw in there? Sure. So my name is Scott Vogelman and uh, I am the global director of Cannondale mountain bikes. Um, and that basically means that I'm on the hook for everything mountain bike related. Uh, I've been, I actually, so funny story. I was talking with a buddy yesterday and he reminded me that yesterday was my 25th anniversary in the bike industry. So I started in all terrain sports in Laramie, Wyoming on December 8th, 1996. And it's been uh, bikes, bikes, bikes ever since. <laughs> So yeah, so I've done I've done a, pretty much all of it through. I ran a warranty department for a while, which was uh, pretty interesting, and uh, I've probably a very good life lesson for I would say just about anybody. I really <laughs> teaches you to take like you know break down what's the problem that you're actually trying to solve. What is this person um, was actually upsetting them, and how do we make it right? And I think that uh, was a pretty good life lesson which not only do I bring to things outside of work, but uh, it has done me well here at work. So I've, I've been here about eight years and I've been part of the crew that has uh, I've developed and produced all the bikes that you can see today on the, on the website. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in the hopper, of course. Yeah, looking forward to talking about a bunch of that in a second here. All right. Uh, I'm Travis Tomzak. I'm the uh, Global Marketing Manager for Mountain at Cannondale. been here uh, just a little over a year now. Like Scott, or unlike Scott, I still have plenty of life lessons to be learned. I uh, come from a, a full, uh, a long uh, background of 
of action sports history. Um, been doing this, I guess, similar to Scott, basically since uh, actually before the day I graduated from college was, you know, came through retail ranks and rep and answering phones and everything, done everything from product to to brand uh, marketing elements and management to uh, throughout my uh throughout my time and uh uh, super excited to be here at at cannondale and uh as we have a a ton of momentum and going in a in a great direction yeah we'll get going here into just a bunch of what you guys have been up to and especially want to talk quite a bit about the jekyll your new enduro bike i've been spending some time on it and have a fair bit to say there but before we get into that specifically why don't we just run through the cannondale mountain bike lineup for this year and uh, kind of have you give us a quick breakdown of what all you guys have to offer right now so this year we had a pretty big mountain bike year last year uh with jekyll uh that was a, a massive massive focus for us and yeah i'm glad that uh that you're on it i'd love to hear what you what you think about it uh, we actually just launched another bike too, the Scalpel Hardtail, and that is a World Cup uh, hardtail race bike. And that was a that's a pretty cool project because, um, you know, hardtails are a huge part of the business in a lot of areas of the world here in the U.S. Uh, not so much, and so we kind of had this like underground campaign of, you know, let's make hardtails cool again. And I think that uh, for sure was something that we laughed about um, a lot, like behind the behind the curtain but i really think that's what we've done uh, with this with that bike like it's combination of geometry and like proper proper geometry and then longer travel it's uh it's pretty sweet it's a lot it's a lot of fun i'm not a hardtail is not always the bike that i reach for but i have found myself on that quite a bit here on our local trails yeah, that's a pretty interesting looking one. And we've got a first look up on the site. We'll check out. We'll throw a link to that in the show notes too. But like you're saying, it's sort of a XC race hardtail, but with quite a bit more progressive geometry than most and just something a little bit different than a lot of what you're seeing in that space and a, a, a neat looking new offering from you guys. It's the hardtail that the industry should have built 10 years ago, straight up. Like with that, that category is so governed by tradition and things like we, sh- we should have had the confidence as an industry to do that a long time ago. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it just seems like, you know, we've seen bikes in pretty much every other category, mountain bikes anyway, get way longer and slacker, et cetera, in the last five to 10 years. And the XC hardtail space has not been doing that particularly. And you guys kind of made a fairly large leap forward on that, which is interesting. Kind of curious to see how that goes over and maybe hopefully get on one at some point here, but it's something pretty different, pretty neat looking. Yeah. And I think it's the the right kind of Cannondale different, right? Pushing the envelope, uh, but not too far that it's, uh, it's extra weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a really good way of summarizing it. He's, he oh. said it, not me. <laughs> what else you got? What's up next in the lineup? Ah, uh, yeah, we got a hover bike and some other stuff that's going to be pretty bad. <laughs> no, I mean, as uh, you know, what's coming up next in the lineup? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's somewhat predictable to an educated eye uh, to an extent of where you can see where we haven't launched a new bike most recently. So take that in and do the math, and you'll figure it out probably where where. The, you're going to see see new uh, new bikes, but uh, it, 
you know, uh, in that to to come back to the hard scalpel, hardtail, or or jackal, like hopefully, um, you know, doing things differently. Um, you know, if you take the scalpel, hardtail, for example, in taking that traditional element, if you look at the marketing side of that, we we wanted to be different there too. Like if you look at that campaign, we didn't. We have the world's best uh xc team in our portfolio and we we didn't use them for that campaign um you know we went about it and and tried to connect with what the majority of the audience is who's riding that bike and that's a lot of us who are racing out of the back of our vans on on the weekends and and living that lifestyle and um really want to make that connection and and show not only that we understand it but we live it too pretty good teaser for uh what's coming there i guess so like scott sort of alluded to a minute ago cannondale sort of does have a bit of a reputation for just doing things a little bit differently and having a little little dose of weird sort of in the mix sometimes and uh so quite excited to see how that sort of manifests itself in what you guys have coming down the pipeline and so Maybe to start pivoting into the Jekyll a little bit, we'll talk more about that specifically in a sec here, but it would probably be a good place to start to talk about the DualShock DH bike that you guys prototyped a few years back and at least in some respects bears some significant resemblance to the Jekyll. And uh, that's also certainly very nicely in keeping with the little bit of Dose of Weird from Cannondale. So... I guess I'd just be very curious to hear where that project started and what the goals were for it, given that that bike ultimately didn't go into production and didn't become a consumer product at the end of the day. So when we started that project, we didn't have plans to make it a production bike. The whole idea behind it was to be a learning project. And then through the various iterations and the questions that we were asking internally, it turned into a full-blown World Cup downhill program, which was, which was pretty cool. Uh, but really, I think if, if, you look at, if you look at credibility of suspension uh, inside the mountain bike world, right? we knew that we were working on a new Jekyll. Um, and then we also knew that we had a whole bunch of questions about the way suspension works and the way uh, riders sit on the bikes. And we wanted to like, just have a science project where we could prove out these ideas that we had at the highest level. Uh, and so the, the dual shock concept came from looking at the way suspension kinematics and the way springs and dampers perform. And the idea was is that, okay, if we uncouple the spring and the damper, uh, what we can do is we can optimize, uh, I guess, leverage curves for the best spring performance, and then you have the best damper performance, and you have those independent of one another. If you think about like the way we talk about suspension as a, as a whole, uh, you like the supple off the top versus big hip uh, capability. Supple off the top is usually uh, very low speed um, uh, inputs into the suspension, so the shaft is not moving that fast uh, in, in the damper versus a, a big hit where, yes, you are moving that shaft extremely fast. Um, and so the, the damper performs very differently in those, in those two scenarios. 
So the whole idea was, okay, if we can create a suspension kinematic where that shaft velocity is much more controlled, we don't see the highs and the lows as much, rather it's more normalized, we can create a bike that has way better performance. Um, and then the the other part of that was like, okay, what can, how does, if we create that damper that has that, or that suspension kinematic that has way better performance, then what happens to the spring side of things? And so that was the reason why we uncoupled it and the, why, the reason why the bike had so many flip chips um, built into it is so that we could try all these different leverage ratios uh, for both the both the spring and damp damper, and you, know, you can change one and then leave the other one the same, and uh, that that was it. And it was really cool for I, all of us on the on the mountain bike team to see that thing race at the highest level. Yeah, it was a really interesting project, and I guess I'd be curious to hear you drill down a little bit more on sort of more specifically what you were doing with the different leverage curves for the damper and spring having decoupled those and i guess to sort of peel back a little farther for people who maybe didn't see this at the time it was the bike was basically set up to have two shocks but one of them was basically spring only and the other one was damper only and so then you had two different linkages driving the two different shocks and like scott just said different leverage curves for those two sh to accomplish different goals and so if i was to hazard a guess at this and i might be wildly wrong so i'm looking forward to hearing you correct me on it but i would guess that you had a fairly quote-unquote normal somewhat progressive leverage curve on the spring end of it and then a much flatter or maybe even a little bit regressive one on the the damper side is that a fair guess or no that was one of the two options which we ended up with actually um and that was the expected outcome and then the unexpected outcome was both of them were quite linear and you rely a little bit more on the high speed compression uh, of the of the damper. And it kind of ended up being rider rider style had a, had an input in that. Um, but then also the courses really played uh, a big a big difference in terms of uh, which setup they went to. Yeah, I can imagine how especially once you have a couple flip chips on both of those and you suddenly have a ton of different permutations that you can wind up with and uh, you were changing things, I guess, depending on course. We recently had uh, Jordy Cortez from Fox on the show. And uh, one of the things that he talked a lot about was that it's sort of his personal philosophy, I guess would be the way to put it, that for the most part, it actually doesn't make a ton of sense to make super dramatic suspension changes based on varying courses and a lot of times he's got people coming into the tent being like oh it started raining i need to start turning all these knobs and doing this that and the other and uh as he sort of put it a lot of his job is talking people off of that ledge and being like no this was working before let's keep it consistent and have a feel that you are familiar with and not start just messing with stuff because you had a bad run and things are feeling a little wonky so yeah i guess just different ways to go about it then from there i guess you know, the Jekyll obviously lost the second shock portion of it, but in a lot of ways, the lines of the bike are fairly similar. And, um, you know, it seemed just looking at the two, it seems like not much of a leap that the DH bike project informed quite a bit of the Jekyll design where that ended up ultimately. Fair to say? Yes, that is absolutely fair to say. Again, it ended up being Jekyll's a um, high pivot 
uh, horse link enduro bike with 165 millimeters of rear travel designed around a 170 fork. And I guess what were some of the biggest lessons that you took away from that DH bike project that did wind up being things that you incorporated into the Jekyll design? I think there's, there's two, I would say the shock placement is one. And then the other one would be, uh, where the main pivot is. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the, the shock placement first. We, that, that downhill bike was ridden with two shocks, but it was also ridden with single shock, uh, and a single shock in that low position while the suspension did not work as well. It straight up just did not work as well. The more, because your center of gravity is, is low on a bike like that and like an x2 or you know a coil shock like those things are not light they're 450 500 plus grams um so like moving that weight down makes it makes a big difference uh the rider the test riders were picking up that there is a lot more stability um in the bike by having that that shock placement low down there and that um that informed jekyll for sure uh, but it also really it kicked off a project um, that happened in the background where the design team looked at how do we make a bike with a split down tube um, for production? Because making some making a prototype versus making a production bike, those are two very very different things. They're very very different things. Um, but uh, yeah, that that shock placement was was the first. The second thing was actually with the with the pivot location. Um, I think the downhill bike was probably a little bit high in that. It has a lot of rearward rear axle path, which is sweet when you're pointed down some sort of rocky chundry stuff. But when you start getting into the position where you want to make a lot of turns, um, having your wheelbase grow as you move through your travel, uh, maybe not the, the sweetest uh, feeling or sensation when you're trying to put it through some some, some tight turns. And so I would put Jekyll in the mid-high pivot range. Yes, you get the, the benefits of that rearward axle path, but as you get deeper into the travel, um, there is a little bit of a limit to it, which I think kind of what, one of the special things that makes Jekyll uh, pretty well balanced. Yeah, I was going to comment on that somewhere in here too, that uh been spending time on uh, several different high pivot bikes this year. And uh, like you said, the Jekyll's main pivot is high-ish enough to require an idler pulley for the chain, but it's certainly not as high as many. And uh, the Forbidden Dreadnought in particular was a bike where I felt quite a lot of what you were just describing there, where it works great when you're just straight lining through something super rough, but there was also quite a bit more awkwardness introduced when you're loading up the suspension into a corner in particular, and then the wheelbase grows. And it almost felt like, I've described it as if it felt like you needed to kind of shift your balance point on the bike rearward as you loaded the suspension up and the wheelbase grew in some kind of funky ways that I didn't get along with super well. And thus far, the Jekyll is feeling much more balanced and normal in that regard. There's a, it's kind of a, a different take on that sort of concept and uh, feels significantly more quote unquote normal, I guess. Like I said, I don't have a huge amount of time on the Jekyll yet. I only got it over pretty recently, but uh, so far it's been pretty interesting. I think it's uh, obviously it's a fairly big enduro bike still, but for what it is, it's proving to be a reasonably versatile take on that. I think um, obviously that's a 
pretty relative statement, right? But pedals pretty well, and it doesn't feel like it is super ponderous and awkward when you're going less than a million miles an hour. And so it feels better at a million miles. An hour. It does. Yeah. It is more what it's meant to do for sure, but it doesn't give up everything to, uh, to get there, I guess. So I guess back to that, like a uh, little bit of unawkwardness that you feel probably has uh, a heavy element of that is probably the proportional response. Like it's the invisible factor that, you know, you you can't see. You can see the shock placement and pivots and those things, but how we actually develop a bike and and Scott can speak to it for certain way better than I can. A proportional response, but you know, in those corners and and your body position and the dynamic ride height and those types of things, um, that's all accounted for in our theory of proportional response. Yeah, tell us a little bit more what you mean by that. So. We, proportional response is the, I guess, the, the technology name that we roll up all of our size-specific engineering under. And so on a hardtail, it looks like tube shapes, um, some chainstay length, which is different by size. And the idea on a hardtail is that, okay, a small rider, they do not need a frame that is the same stiffness as a, as a size XL, right? It's just going to shake their fillings out and just not be sweet. Um, on a full suspension bike, if you look at the effects of suspension, um, the rider is the biggest uh, piece of the equation that affects how the suspension works, right? So if you look at the rider position of a, of a smaller rider versus a rider that would ride size XL, um, the influence of the rider on the way the suspension works is going to be very different, right? Like just, it, you can see that like with two people standing next to each other. Right? So what we've done with our suspension kinematic is we take a center of gravity and that center of gravity is different by every single size. So what we're doing is, yes, we are effectively designing four bikes for one model. So Jekyll, the engineers had to make essentially four different bikes for Jekyll to work. The, the benefit out of that um, is that as a rider, you end up with a larger sweet spot. Um, and I think that that's super important for when you're trying to go fast. Um, if you have a bike that where your center of gravity is optimized for you as a rider, like you have the ability to, I'd say, just turn off and let the bike disappear underneath you and just focus on what's coming at you uh, down the trail. Because if you hit something and you get knocked off balance, you're not pushed out of that sweet spot. Um, and that, that to me is like the biggest benefit of proportional response. And so, yes, there is a leverage ratio component to it. There's a chainstay length compo component to it because as your front center grows, you want your rear center to grow so that the rider is like centered in between there. And then there's like the, the center of gravity, which drives the instant center of the suspension. All those things work together uh, to keep the, the rider uh, comfortable and like, like we just want to go for a bike ride and have fun right so if you if you have like a bike that just kind of disappears underneath you and you can like look down the trail and focus on hitting that sneaky uh side jump like with sniper lines like that's what it's all about i think that's to me the piece that um that we're that we brought with jekyll we brought with, um in a different way with scalpel hardtail 
Uh, it's featured in uh, all of our all of our bikes, uh, which I think that's a pretty big pretty big difference maker. I'd be curious to hear when you're talking about the Jekyll, for example, and saying that you're designing four different bikes for the four different sizes. How many of the frame parts actually end up being different? Then, obviously, the front triangle is different for different sizes. But are you and you are doing different chainstay lengths by size? But there are plenty of brands doing that just by moving pivot locations around and using the same physical rear triangles, for example. So I'd be curious how you're going about all that. So one of the things that we are pushing extremely hard for out to all of our retailers, like here in the U.S., but also globally um, and riders for sure, is just easy to do business with. And so one of the parameters that we brought to the engineering team was that we did not want to make different frame pieces. Like front triangle, yes, but in terms of link, yoke, uh, chain stays, seat stays, we didn't want to do different stuff. Um, and so the that's part of the magic of what um, our engineering team was able to bring is that if you were to overlay all the suspension points in space, uh, you would see that they actually rotate um, forward a little bit. And that's what allows us to adjust for center of gravity, uh, but also the main pivot in relation to the bottom bracket that moves. And that's what gives the, the chainstay length. Uh, adjustments. And so, yeah, you do gain a few millimeters of travel by size, but that doesn't really matter that much. Um, rather, it's more about that sweet spot um, that you sit in as a rider that gives you, that gives you more control. Yeah. There are definitely other brands doing something similar in terms of just moving the main pivot backwards to make longer stays. It's uh and like you said, yeah, it's a few millimeters different travel, but doesn't seem like a particularly big deal one way or the other. So, uh, so another thing I'd be sort of curious about that we touched on a little bit already, but the I think a lot of people sort of assumed that that dual shock DH bike was a production bound thing just because it was a carbon fiber frame. And there's obviously a big investment in molds and so on to make that happen. And you said still, even so there's a difference between making some prototypes and having something that's truly production ready and you're able to build it scale. But what was the, the thinking behind justifying that investment, I guess, to go for carbon on that prototype bike? Well, I would, I would encourage people to look up a picture of that bike. Just Google it. Uh, Cannondale downhill. And bike, and you will see the amount of shock positions that are possible. They're all driven by these little um, flip chips and things. Um, and then the two shock mounting. Yes, we could have made that thing out of aluminum, but when you look at just the sheer amount of machine time to create all those different pieces and weld it together, it kind of didn't make sense. It's like, well, we can make an aluminum bike and it costs X amount, or we can make a carbon bike. And it costs slightly more, but it'll be faster because we don't have months of machine time. So I guess we'll just make the carbon bike. And I think that was a pretty, pretty good move at the, at the end of the day, because it ended up being lighter for sure. Um, but it just it also looks way, way cooler than some, uh, some hacked together meal. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, certainly stuff like that big down tube cavity would not have been a straightforward thing to make in aluminum. To put it lightly, yeah. That would have been a heavy part. Yeah, that would have been a heavy part. <laughs> no, I just thought it was interesting because I think 
that explanation totally checks out, but that did sort of throw some people off to seeing this this bike that in some ways looked like it was a you know, something that was moving towards production and then it turns out no. Another thing I'd be curious about with the Jekyll is to what extent you do or do not kind of work in collaboration with GT on some of these things, you know, your kind of sister brands and the new force that came out at around the same time as the Jekyll uh, shares some fairly obvious similarities in design. Obviously the suspension layout's a bit different with their shock being vertically oriented and not in the down tube cavity like it is on the Jekyll, et cetera. But they're kind of both mid high pivot layouts, horse link, et cetera. So there's some similarities there too. And I, I have no idea what the answer to this would be, but would be curious for your take on it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a, it's a fair question. Um, the, the product teams for Cannondale and GT are totally separate. Um, we do talk to each other. We're friends. We even go on bike rides together. Um, but the, they're very different. And ultimately, the brand goals are are different, right? So uh, even though they're out of the same building, um, what what the GT guys are going after and what we on the Cannondale side are going after are very, very different goals. However, the engineering resources are shared. And I think that's one thing um, which is a which is a strength. Um, and so it's like if we learn about oh hey we need to drive fifteen percent more stiffness through this pivot, we're able to figure out a solution in that area. Um, that that solution could be applied to GT, or if it fi- is figured out on a GT product, it can be applied to Cannondale. Um, but in terms of the way that new force rides and the way Jekyll rides, I'd encourage you to see if you can get your your, your mitts on a on a GT because yes, I've ridden it and it is a completely different bike. Like it is a completely different bike. It has totally different suspension characteristics. Yes, it has a, has an idler, but they are they are very different bikes overall. Yeah, I am trying to get my hands on one. It's uh, been a little bit of a challenge with. 2021 being what it is but uh hoping to make that happen soon and it'll be very interesting to compare the two don't worry 22 is looking like it's gonna be all rainbows and unicorns as well <laughs> don't forget the sunshine <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. well you gotta have sunshine to create a rainbow right so yeah all right, yeah science Perfect. So the, yeah, we have the Travis promise that supply chain problems are going to absolutely evaporate on January 1st and everything's going to be awesome. I forgot to say off the record. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it was headline news on CNN and I had half the uh, sales force uh, in the US like pinging me this morning. Hey, we, does this, this mean everything's fixed? No, it's not fixed. I guess on a related note, it seems like uh, just as a brand in general, Cannondale's kind of been making a big push on the kind of enduro side of things of late. You've obviously, launching the Jekyll's a big part of that, but then you've kind of been building out a team of athletes as well. And uh, tell us a little bit about the decision making to make that big push. And alongside of it, you know, we talked about the DH program that's sort of faded off. And what was the thinking behind all of that, I guess? So. The DH program, to be honest, was before my time. So I can't speak too much to it, um, knowing all the intricacies, ins and outs, whys, why nots on that. Obviously, you know, Scott touched on a ton of the 
why from a product development standpoint, right? Um, what I can speak to is what that led to and more of where we're going. And, you know, what that led to, um, it was an amazing Enduro race bike in the Jekyll, right? And then what we needed to prove that bike was elite level racers. Um, but that also fall into, um, the future, the, the, who we are and who we want to be as well. Um, so that, that, uh, led to us, uh, signing Mitch Repolato, uh, Carolyn, we already had Ella Connolly, which is awesome. Um, and then, uh, you know, regionally as well. Um, if, if you go and look at what's happening in, in Europe or what will happen in North America next year with teams, um, the, there's a significant um, focus on that uh, and, and investment in it, and uh, we'll continue to do so for for foreseeable future. Um, you know, obviously, launching the Jekyll and having a rider such as Mitch, who's, you know, every your favorite rider's favorite rider, right? Like he's, he's one of a kind in many, many ways. Uh, that's in many ways, in many ways, <laughs> more so than even just his hair color of the week. So, um, you know, but that, that he represents who we are, this like lovable rogue, you know, you mentioned it earlier of, of, um, you know, Cannondale's weirdness, right. And sure. We can all admit, I think, if we look at the the annals here of of Cannondale, there are things that were just weird and nobody wanted, right? But then if we look at like when if we take change the word from weird to irreverent or disruptive or whatever cliche marketing term you want to use, that's when we were six, very successful in in the mountain space and and a loved brand. I mean, it. I think all of us here on this call are of, of a age that we can reference, you know, the, the, the Volvo Cannondale era and the Missigiovis and those things and, and, um, and really appreciate that. And, you know, as great as it is to say like, Oh, I was so sick then. Like it's kind of the last thing I want to hear right now. Like I want to hear that we're just, we're rad now. Right. And, um, and that's, what we're building, where we're going from a personality standpoint to a performance standpoint. Um, you know, it's one, one thing to, to have a podium that that's great. And I'm not going to say that a podium for us on an Enduro world series, which we've had with, with Ella, but you know, if Mitch comes out and, and has a great season next year or whatever it may be, um, that that's not going to move the needle for us. It absolutely will. And it will help really prove prove our bike but what those athletes do for us more from a a personality standpoint and a, and defining who we are is is way bigger yeah like you were saying mitch in particular does seem like a really good fit for you guys and we had carolyn on the podcast earlier this year and that was a cool chat she's up to some good stuff so just been neat seeing the direction you're going in she's another great example too of of people doing it their own way Right. And that, that, that's the epitome of who we are. We're not going to let, let somebody else dictate what's right or wrong. And, and I mean, I could go on a whole long, we could 
I could tear up another hour on on the bike industry and and <laughs> and dictating what people are fed, right? As opposed to to bringing in culture and these differences and and doing it your way. Well, that might be a pretty good segue into kind of how we like to wrap things up around here with the question about everyone's big idea. So, Travis, what do you got for us? Oh, man. Well, outside of that hover bike, you know, um, I'll I'll let Scott Scott speak to product big ideas. But, I mean, you give me the the soapbox here, I'll I'll take it, I guess. And that's um, the big idea, you know. for for a brand for Cannondale in general, I mean, we we want to be inclusive, but we want to also uh, have elements that relate to to people in human ways, not in, for lack of a better term, bike robot speak. You know, like, um, and that's I'm not saying that's a big idea, but what the the element to the bigger uh, concept there is to, to influence uh, the mountain bike culture through, through our lens. And I think you see glimpses of this uh, specifically a step, like even if you just go to our website and look at the visuals, right? Like there's a start there that it looks different than a standard bike website or, or pure performance driven um, style. And and then on the flip side, it's also not not we're not pure bro. We're not just flannels and PBR either, right? So it's finding finding that intersection between performance and lifestyle, and and providing those cultural elements that um, other action sports have been able to to cross over. And you know, I I dream of a so here's the big idea, right? Is I dream of this this world where cycling is cool that's a very generic term but cool in the manner that skate surf snow have have transformed what uh fashion music etc um where i i would love to see this this the maybe the most accessible of all these sports being as simple as the bike influence culture in some manner that's pretty good. Scott, how are you going to follow that up? <laughs> well, um, I think I'm going to take my Cannondale hat off and uh, give my, my personal uh, big idea. And I think um, as I spend a lot of time deep in patents, um, that's part of my job. I have to have an idea of spaces where we can operate, uh, spaces where we can't operate. And one of the things that's been showing up a lot is quote unquote green patents. Um, and so like where companies are patenting like green things. And I think, I feel like, you know, all of us on this call, like we're in the position where we can make some decisions for our, for the future, right? Like if I really make a mistake, I guarantee you I can make a ton of landfill space. And I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy, right? What I, what I want to be is like part of the, you know, fostering, making, trying to foster things, make things better for, for the next generation. And so I see these companies that are patenting these green technologies in order to monetize them. And I would much rather see like, um, I guess for lack of a better term, like an open source of green ideas, right? So how is we, as the cycling industry and the outdoor industry, how can we work together 
to um, like just try to make things better overall for our kids. So and our kids' kids, so they can go have those super sweet bike rides, um, the super sweet ski adventures, or whatever other um, activity you want to you want to do outside. Um, so that's actually something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I have a couple engineers on staff that are super passionate about it and we're we're starting to get a little bit of a idea foundry going there so i, I would say if uh, people have ideas um yeah let's let's get something going that's two pretty good pretty big ideas from you both i like it this has been a lot of fun thanks for coming on both of you and really looking forward to seeing what you guys have coming down the pipeline soon right on really appreciate it david yeah thanks david this was a lot of fun That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Scott and Travis for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.